Well, I hope you're ready to hear an encouraging sermon because today we're going to be talking about encouragement. And I suspect you will be encouraged or at least you'll have an opportunity to be encouraged, but maybe not in in the way you might think. You might be surprised at how the Bible goes about encouraging Christians in particular. It's rather obvious, but it might be surprising when we see it in Acts chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. When I think of Acts 20, I think of leadership. Uh, and we are going to talk about leadership also, but the first half of Acts 20 is all about Christian encouragement and the encouragement that we find in the gospel. And uh, I came here today looking to be encouraged. Uh, I've had a discouraging week of it, but that seems like it's most weeks of my life. And uh, I tell my wife, I'm in a bad mood. I'm glad I'm going to church today. It's like the reset button when I can kind of get in touch with with reality again every week. And I forget by the time I get home and have to come again next week. So I think the Lord knew what he was doing when we ha- he had us gathering regularly. We're going to be encouraged. So first half of Acts 20 is about encouragement. Uh, second half is about leadership in the church. Uh, and so we'll cover both of those topics. If you're just joining us, welcome. We've been studying the book of Acts for, oh, 20-some weeks now because we're trying to do roughly a chapter a week. It's all about the actions of the early church, the acts, of you, if you will, of the apostles of the Lord Jesus, early church, the Holy Spirit working in and through them. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus commissions the church to take the gospel essentially to the ends of the earth before he ascends. And so it's action-packed, it's interesting, details, lots of names, lots of places, uh, and that's what it's all about. But today in particular, encouragement and then leadership. We'll see if we can do all 38 verses this morning or not, but we're trying to do whole chapters so we can keep things moving. So let's begin by looking at verse 1. Again, the encouragement section Verses 1 to 16, after the uproar, the almost riot that we saw last time in Ephesus, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, in this case Christian disciples, followers of Christ, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia home of the Philippian church, the Thessalonica church, the Berean church, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, literally many words of encouragement, because Christians encourage with words, because we're telling people about the truth regarding Jesus, the gospel, he came to Greece, or the province of Achaia, which is where the Corinthian church would be. So this is what's called the third missionary journey. He's already been to these places. He's already evangelized. He's already helped them. He's already spent time in these places. And now he's, if you will, if you will, making the rounds again, encouraging them, encouraging them with many words. Uh, no doubt if we would follow the context of the book of Acts, the many words that he's been speaking have been gospel words. The truth about Jesus, the truth about who you are if you're trusting in Jesus, the truth about his coming kingdom that you're now a mem- member of by virtue of the fact that if you're trusting in the king, the Christ, Christ means king, then you are going to be with him in his kingdom. And so it's good news to, uh, to hear all of these things. But in this case... So far, and we're going to see it 
later on as well, he's encouraging them and he's encouraging them with many words. And so that tells us, again, if the pattern is there, and I think it is, it's gospel words. Let me tell you about regardless of what's happening here, regardless of what's happening in the government, regardless of what's happening with conflict with your fellow former Jewish countrymen and women, let's be inclusive. Regardless of what's going on, there's encouragement in Christ. Your your biggest problem that would be your biggest eternal problem has been taken care of. And so while you might still have problems and you might still have difficulties, you can cope. You can do it. You can face tomorrow. He is encouraging them. He's doing what Christians do. They encourage with many words regarding Christ. Verse 3 then says... There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And next we're introduced to details. Luke likes details, and he's going to give us details about people and places. And so here are some of his traveling companions, some of his his spiritual deputies, if you will. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby or Gaius, and Timothy, the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. And if that's how you're supposed to say their names, wonderful. If it's not, I suppose we can deal with it. What, just ever so quickly... I do find it interesting, and I've mentioned this often, but I'm going to keep mentioning it. Uh, Luke likes details. He likes do- details probably because it, it serves us as, fa- as far as apologetic value. So these aren't the tales of a long-lost place far, far away in our imaginations. Uh, no, these are people who were converted during his preaching ministry of the gospel, and now they're accompanying him as support staff, if you will. And so we end up having real people, real places. We might think, why all of these details? Couldn't he just cut to the chase? Yes, he could cut to the chase, and there's a place for that, but I like it that he actually is talking about people and places. I also like it because it reminds us that there is a need for not just the apostles, the unique ones speaking with the unique authority of Jesus. There were other people involved. There were other people supporting, other people helping because gospel ministry is not just about one person. It's about the many people. And so I like some of those kinds of details. Well, with that in mind, let's keep going. Verse 5 says, These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Notice now it's us, but we. So it appears that Luke has now joined once again. We saw him join earlier. Now he's joining again. Again, if you're just joining us, two volumes written by one who was a medical doctor, Luke. And so we have Luke-Acts, they go together. And he's actually written, if you go back to the gospel according to Luke, so that his initial audience would have certainty regarding Christian truths and Christian realities. So he wants there to be certainty, thus he gives details, and he's qualified because he's an eyewitness, at least for some of it. So keep that in mind, if you will. And now where we're we, oh, we're in verse 6. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of un- unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Again, details. Then it says in verse 7, on the first day of the week. Some think that that's because Paul wanted to be with them for their formal worship day. First day of the week, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. When we were gathered together to break bread. 
perhaps the Lord's Supper. Most people think it is the Lord's Supper, first day of the week. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Which would make sense in one sense because he's giving many words of encouragement we learned in the opening verses. And he's just that kind of guy. He's so encouraging. He gives many words. And he's so encouraging that he gives many words and it might even last till midnight. So of all days to preach a long sermon, today's going to be that day. And as you will see, it's a good thing we don't have a three-story church. Or it might mean death for some of you. And if you're thinking, what is he talking about? We'll get to it. It's in the text. Okay, with with that in mind, it says in verse 8, There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, maybe for fresh air due to so many lamps, I don't know, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Oh, that's why it's good we don't have a third story at Omaha Bible Church. I asked someone this morning, I said, is it Eutychus or Tychicus that falls out of the window? He said, oh, it's Eutychus because a pastor once told me that if you fell out of the third story and died, you'd cuss too. I thought, (laughs) Eutychus. Notice I didn't say that. It was someone else. But I'll never forget it. (laughs) He was taken up dead, which is kind of a weird way to word it, but it's probably because they had to move him. Right, He was dead, and, and he was so dead that, that to, to, to get him out of the way or to a more appropriate place, they had to lift him up. He was taken up dead. Verse 10 says, but, but Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. So in verse 9, he's dead, and now he's alive in verse 10. And, you know, it's kind of just like, what's for lunch yawner for us? Because we knew how it was going to end. And we already, you know, you know the story. But it's it's meant to be remarkable because it's remarkable. I mean, that's li- that's like something that Jesus would do. Oh, he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus. It's not ordinary. It's not regular. It's unique. But it does further authenticate the legitimacy of the Apostle Paul's ministry, which is sometimes attacked. And so there's that. It resembles Jesus. It authenticates his apostleship. You know what it also does? It reminds everyone. What a great illustration. It reminds everyone of the very thing that the apostle Paul has been talking about. That if you trust in Christ, you are guaranteed resurrection. You're you're guaranteed reconciliation with God. and You're guaranteed eternal life. As Jesus said, if you trust in me, I'm paraphrasing... Though you die, you will live. I, Jesus said, I am the resurrection. And so that's, that's been his one string guitar all along is preaching hope in Christ, eternal life in the eternal kingdom with Christ. If you trust in him, the resurrection. And guess what? Here's a preview. Here's a preview of coming attractions. Now remember, when people were raised from the dead, it didn't happen often, but when it did happen, we have no reason to conclude that that's the new Christian health care plan. Okay? Those people would have eventually had funerals. 
But, th- but they do illustrate the power of Christ. They do illustrate what is to come that will last forever because there is ultimate power of resurrection. And so what a great sermon illustration for him to basically be able to say, that's, this is what I've been talking about. But while he still has to plan a funeral someday, Ultimately, you won't have an ultimate funeral if you're trusting in Christ, the ascended one ruling and reigning on behalf of his people. Verse 11 then says, And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while. (laughs) Many words of encouragement. It goes till midnight. And you'd think after somebody fell out of the window and died, he might be done. And he's like, okay, well, now that we had a little bit to eat, let's keep talking about this. Converse with him a long while until daybreak and so departed. So it's so good he can't stop talking about it. Verse 12 then says, and they took the youth away alive. Remember in verse, 10, verse 9, he was dead and they took him away alive and were not a little comforted. And so now what we need to do before we move on is to settle in a little bit and maybe have a better theology, a better theological understanding. Theology is the study of God and his ways. We'd better have a, maybe dig in a little bit, a better, and have a better theology of comfort. A better theology of comfort slash encouragement. They actually are the same words in the original language. So he's comforting, he's encouraging them. Verses 1 and 2, he's encouraging them with many words. And now, because of the resurrection, they were not a little comforted. They were not a little encouraged. And I hope you see already, I hope you're connecting some dots and saying, oh, this is, this is, this is important. What brings ultimate encouragement? What brings ultimate comfort? Well, it's got to be the thing that he used many words to describe. It's got to be the reality of what, what was his name again? Eutychus. (laughs) Of what Eutychus illustrates and he, his resurrection illustrates resurrection. Ultimate comfort comes to Christians. Ultimate encouragement amidst the discouragement comes to Christians because of the work of Christ. Because of new life in his kingdom that we are partakers of even now, though we've not been raised from the dead. And I would love to do a whole sermon sometime just to develop this idea, but let's just do a mini little theology of comfort in this light. So verses 1 and 2, there's encouragement, many words of encouragement. Now the same basic word in the original text, in the Greek text, at the end of verse 12, they're not a little comforted. They're not a little encouraged. In fact, they're what a way of saying it. They're very encouraged because there's unstoppable victory found in Christ who is the resurrection. Now let's keep connecting some more dots. Jesus in John 14, 16 said, he's going to leave, but I'm going to leave you with another, remember, another comforter or helper. Oh, same basic word. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. Oh, that's interesting because who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Well, that should bring you comfort. If you've been given the Holy Spirit, it's a guarantee. Sometimes the Bible speaks in terms of a down payment. Uh, You've been sealed with the Spirit. The Spirit is the very one who raised Jesus from the dead, 1 Timothy 3.16. And you've been given the Spirit, guaranteed that you're going to be raised from the dead too. It's comforting. 
It's encouraging. Suffering and pain and difficulty and even death in this life will not have the final word. Folks, be encouraged. Be comforted by this great reality. Remember as well that Jesus is also referred to with this same label. Uh, Jesus in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. Jesus in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. Remember it says uh, that we're not supposed to sin as Christians. But if you do, you have an advocate translated differently. Same word though. You have a comforter. You have one who comes alongside of you. You have a helper. Jesus Christ. Anybody know for $10? The righteous, and now I'm broke. <laughs> I promised someone $5 this morning. I don't have any money in my wallet. So who carries money anymore? <laughs> Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's our helper. He's our comforter. He's our encourager when we sin because the legal obligation has been met. He's the righteous. He's the law keeper. And so I can be comforted. I can be helped. I can be encouraged. Even when I'm struggling with my sin, I have a right legal standing with God because Jesus Christ is perfect when it comes to adherence to the law. Comfort, encouragement, it comes from Christ. It comes from the Spirit. It comes from God providing comfort and encouragement. It's a gospel reality that we lose sight of sometimes. All same concept. Oh, I have a little bit more and then we'll move on. In Luke chapter 2 verse 25, Simeon, who was called a righteous and devout man, It says, waiting for the consolation, same word translated differently, waiting for the comfort of Israel, waiting for the help of Israel, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So godly people before Christ came have been waiting for the consolation, waiting for help, waiting for encouragement because we're discouraged by our sins. We're discouraged by the sins of others against us and against one another and unrighteousness. We want encouragement and there had been a long ago promised capital C comfort coming to Israel. Simeon's waiting for it. In other words, he's waiting for He's waiting for Christ. He's waiting for the ultimate king to bring ultimate encouragement and comfort because he will conquer sin and death. And then maybe go, I want to go to one more passage because I've been working my way backward. So we start in Acts and then we have to back up to to the Holy Spirit coming and then we have to back up to Jesus talking about uh, Jesus himself. And if we back up a little bit more before the coming of Christ, well, this is all over the Old Testament. This is this great reality that Isaiah emphasizes again and again. Some of you who've been Christians for longer than some of the rest of us know and you think of, oh, that's Isaiah 40. It's the classic comfort text. Isaiah 40 verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Greek version of the Old Testament. Same word. Help, help, encouragement, encouragement, ultimate comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her well, her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Oh, I need to be encouraged, pastor. Well, I could, you know, give you a pat on the back. Um, I could help you with the temporal. I could maybe give you some advice. Uh, 
there are lots of ways that we like to be comforted and maybe there are appropriate ways to be comforted, encouraged. But you just have to know ultimate encouragement, ultimate comfort, ultimate help is something the Bible talks a lot about. And it has everything to do with the work of Christ in the gospel, resurrection, no more guilt before God, many words. It's no wonder he went on till midnight. It's no wonder they were, how did it say, say it said it kind of strange, not a little bit comforted (laughs) because your biggest problem has been taken care of. We, we lose sight of this. It's so good. The great reality of comfort that can only come from the gospel, the work of Christ. It is what encourages us. It's no wonder that Christians, perhaps wiser than the one standing before you, said things like this in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That's the first question. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death. And he goes on to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you'd like to comfort me and encourage me, and I would love it if you would do that, remind me about what's true in Christ. And I'll try to do my very best to do the same thing as well. Ultimately, how do you face tomorrow, regardless of what's going on? Comfort, comfort. It's found in Christ. Someday I'll preach a sermon on that. But I had to sneak a mini-sermon inside of a sermon because it's probably the most important thing I'll say to you. It's not always what people are looking for, but it's actually what they need, even if they don't know it's what they need. Okay, and now for verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos... We took him on board and went to Mytilene, an island, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, another island. The next day, we touched at Samos, you might guess, another island. And the day after that, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Details, details, details. In one sense, not very relevant. Why does he want to get Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? The text doesn't say. Maybe it's to, to, to have a very timely uh, return. And thinking back to Acts, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost where so much was inbreaking into the world as far as the kingdom of God and something unique and extraordinary hap- happening. And now we've got a later day of Pentecost celebration. Wouldn't it be a great time to give them an update as to all of the amazing things that have been happening in Pentecostalism? Well, not really, but you get the idea. I want to go back for that unique day and say, hey, here's the update. Here's the progress of the gospel. Remember, Jesus commissioned us and look at what's happened so far. What a great time it would be to celebrate the effects, if you will, of Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Well, strangely enough, though, he avoids Ephesus. But what he's going to do, he's going to avoid Ephesus, but he's going to call for the 
church leaders at Ephesus to come meet with him. Maybe it's because he's, you know, he, he, he's on a time limit. He needs to get to Jerusalem. He wants to get there and he knows what would happen if he went to Ephesus. He would have to talk to everybody. And so I'm reading between the lines here, but for whatever reason, because there's a time crunch, he doesn't meet with everybody, but it's important that he talk to the leaders. And so the leaders, the Ephesian elders are called to go and meet with him. Now we're in the latter section, the second half of our text, the leadership section. And it says in verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And what he's going to do is he's going to lead by example before he then says to them, here's what you must do. But before he says, here's what you must do, church leaders, he's going to model for them the fact that he's been doing these very things. So that's what we're up to here. This is a great passage for you if you are a church leader, if you are an aspiring church leader. It's a great text for you if you're not a church leader so that you can pray for church leaders and try to encourage them. But this is like classic when you say, okay, let's learn about leadership from the Bible when it comes to church leadership. Uh, this has got to be like a top three text. So this is directed toward you, all of you. If you're a leader, for sure toward you. Um, aspiring, yes, toward you as well. Not a leader, okay, toward you as well. Please pray for leaders and know what is expected of church leaders this is a great, great section. It's passionate. It's forceful. It's clear, earnest. And somebody took the clock down from the back wall. So I, and, and in light of the fact that Eutychus and all that stuff, um, we have time for this. No, I will go as fast as I humanly can because I don't want Eutychus. <sighs> Sorry about that. (laughs) Keep in mind when he's talking about elders, we do have in Ephesus. So one local region, one church, there's plural elders, not just one. There's plural elders at a local congregation. Uh, Keep in mind they're called elders, not because they have to be old, because we'll learn in other books of the Bible, Timothy's actually young. And Timothy's going to be the pastor of this church. He's going to be an elder at this church. So he's young, but he's not supposed, he's, Paul tells him not to act young. Don't let anyone look down on you for your youthfulness. But they're called elders in the Bible because as a general rule, notice I'm avoiding always and never, as a general rule, older people are more mature. Okay, and so they're to be spiritually mature people leading in the church and they meet certain qualifications showing they're spiritually mature from First Timothy and they're called elders. And we're going to see they're also called pastors and they're also called overseers, same people, different labels. Okay, here we go. What an example. Verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know, stressing something that is, is to be underlined. You're fully aware of this. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You know this. 
It sounds like he's being defensive, and I think he probably is. Uh, he knows that the uh, people are going to attack him. We know this from like Second Corinthians. But he's saying, you yourselves know. You've seen it from the day I stepped foot on the shore. This is how I've been living. You know this is the, this is the case. I've been acting as a servant of the Lord Jesus, which is interesting because Jesus has already ascended. But he is serving, serving the ascended king. He's been a minister. He's been a servant. He hasn't been in charge. But he has been serving with all humility. I like it in this context because we're about to see that this humble one also declares things. And a lot of times when we think, I mean, if you Google search a picture of humble, you're going to find like a guru who doesn't say much and just does the om kind of thing, right? And we think, oh, what a humble soul. Well, if you're a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're humble by doing what he says, which means speaking many words, which means declaring things. But you don't declare what you want to declare. You declare what he declares. And that actually shows humility. So it's a different picture than we would tend to have. So I did this with all humility. I was under authority. I wasn't doing my own thing. And it's with tears. So notice that it's the earnestness. It's the care and concern for the people. And also he did this not just when it was easy or convenient. He did it with trials. And so it's a great way of describing authentic, genuine, lived out Christian ministry. The Apostle Paul wasn't perfect. He wasn't the fourth person of the Godhead. Repent of that bad theology. He even calls himself chief of sinners. But he stuck to the script earnestly. You yourselves know, he says. Then it says in verse 20, how I did not shrink. I didn't hold back. I wasn't a coward. I wasn't afraid. I didn't shrink from declaring, right? The humble one declares the right things, declaring to you anything that was profitable or to your advantage and teaching you in public and from house to house. So I, I wasn't hiding. Again, I wasn't compromising. I would do it anywhere and everywhere I possibly could. 21 says, testifying both to Jews and, Greek, and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Jews needed to repent because just because they had God's word didn't mean they were perfect. They weren't. Of all people, they should know they need to repent. But also non-Jews, the Greeks, they need to repent too. So think it through. This is just a summary of the gospel and, and what leads up to the gospel because the good news doesn't make a lot of sense unless you understand the bad news. And so he's just hitting those highlights. You yourselves know, what did I preach? I didn't preach that people were inherently good. I didn't preach that as long as you have a Bible, everything's okay. I didn't preach that at all. I preached to the, to the Jews and to the non-Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God. I preached to them that they needed to know that they're spiritually wrong and they're spiritually in a wrong position and so that they might understand their need for Christ. So he preaches repentance that they all fundamentally, first and foremost, it means a change of mind, but a change of mind about yourself, a change of mind about your spiritual status, a change of mind about who God is maybe, a change of mind about who Jesus, who grew up in Nazareth is. So he, he preached that. He, he didn't tell people they're fine where they are. No, he preached repentance and he preached also faith in Christ Jesus. And so person, the work of Christ, you've got to trust in him. That's the only way to be right with God. It's the only way to be a citizen of his kingdom. 
It's all because of God's grace. You get the idea, right? He didn't shy away from these things. He was clear. He was bold. And they themselves knew he was clear and he was bold. And I'm going to remind you, this is all preparatory before he points the finger at those Ephesian leaders and says, you need to do the same thing. This is modeling. Courage, boldness, care, concern. Then it says in verse 22, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Well, except, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So if you'd like, if you're that kind of person who likes verses out of context to put on a plaque on your desk, here's a good one. Imprisonment and afflictions await me. <laughs> okay, don't do that. We don't like Bible verses out of context, but some people do. <laughs> but it was Paul's life verse, at least for right now. You, 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 you want to know God's will for your life? You know, you want to know what's going to happen? Not good things. So it'd be a great opportunity in time for compromising. No. Can't do it. I've got to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got to be humble. And so he's going to stick to the script. Verse 24 says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. Right? Using, using a race image, I've, I've, got, to, I've got to keep going. I've, I've got to finish my course. I've been called by Christ to do this. And he's saying, you stick to this and you keep doing this no matter what happens until the end of the race. And the ministry, it says there, the ministry, the service that I receive from the Lord Jesus. Notice what he says there at the end. I love it. What a perspective to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And the testify word is like you're going to give a testimony. You're going to, you're going to be called to testify like in a, in a trial. He's going to testify because this is true for his life. Right? He himself was not on the right road, even though he believed the Bible was true. And he needed to repent. He needed grace. He needed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to testify as one who's personally experienced and also saying this is good news for you as well. I love the passion and the commitment and it's motivating to think that, that that's just so good and that's so, that's so right. Focused. I'm not going to be a quitter. I'm not going to be a cheater. I'm not going to try to change the message. I'm going to be faithful to the very end. More value, valuable than my life is the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and bought me and set me free. And so I'm going to be faithful to this. In some ways, I hope this is true for all Christians to say, that inspires me. But it certainly had better be true for Christian leaders. Stay the course. Keep running. Don't cut corners. Don't be disqualified. 25 says, let's keep going. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. See, he uses that sometimes and he uses gospel sometimes because they overlap. Because if you believe in the truth about Christ, who is the king, then you're a part of his kingdom and it will be good for you and it'll be where things are made right. So proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. How about this? Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. 
pretty serious. Really serious. How could he know that he's innocent of the blood of all? It's related to the saying, right? He doesn't have any blood on his hands. He told them everything he needed to tell them. How could he say that? I would want to be able to say that. I would want any Christian leader to be able to say that. What a bold claim. How can anyone make such a claim? Verse 27. Here's the answer. I'm glad you asked. Verse 27 says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I know that I'm not guilty. I know that I've delivered what I was commissioned to deliver to you. I'm going to sleep well tonight because I gave you, I delivered to you the whole counsel of God. So that's the calling. That's the obligation that he's under. That's what he wants to do. He's no doubt going to eventually say this is what he wants the Ephesian elders to do. To give the whole counsel of God. And if you give the whole counsel of God, you can sleep well at night. You can know and not have to, to feel guilty that somehow you didn't give them what they needed to avoid condemnation on judgment day. You give them the whole counsel of God. And then that begs the question, I hope you're asking it, what in the world does the whole counsel of God mean? Glad you asked that too. If you look up counsel in a Greek dictionary, lots of Greek today. You don't need to know Greek to go to heaven, thankfully. But the New Testament's written in Greek. If you, you look up that word translated counsel, it means this, to purpose, to plan, or to intend. So he preaches the whole purpose of God, the whole plan of God, the whole intention of God. In Romans chapter 9, verse 19, it's translated will. I preach the whole will of God. The New American Standard translates Acts 20, 27, the whole purpose of God. The New International Version, the whole will of God. So the idea probably isn't, I taught them the whole Bible, and once they memorized all of it in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, now they're ready for heaven, and so I can sleep good at night. It's probably not the idea. Salvation by knowing Bible verses. No, I'm free of the guilt of the blood of all. You know what? Because I gave you the whole will of God. I gave you the whole purpose of God. I gave you everything you needed to know about the plan, purpose, will, counsel of God. Intent. You say, I still need some more help understanding. Okay, good. When he later writes to the Ephesians, he uses the same verbiage when he says this, in him we have obtained an inheritance that is in Christ, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the, here's our word, counsel of his will. Here's what's happening. 
I, I, I'm, I'm free of guilt because I gave you the whole counsel of God. I gave you the whole plan of God in Christ. I gave you the whole purpose of God in Christ. I told you about God's eternal decree. To use theological language, I told you about the covenant of redemption. I told you about how there is a God, the triune God. And before time began, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit purposed to redeem sinners. And therefore, all of history that we have in the Bible has been ultimately anticipating Christ in the Old Testament and then he comes and it's all talking about the significance of that. In other words, he's saying, I connected the dots. I told you about Christ and how Christ fulfills all of the shadows and promises. I told you about how he fits into the whole council of things. I love it. Yeah, he taught them the whole Bible and how Jesus Christ Is at the center of all of it. He's the one they've been waiting for. The counsel of his will. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 24. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. He's showing how it all points to Christ. It all anticipates him. And he's the one you need to trust in. Not the shadows. Not the Generic, unhinged stories that have nothing to do with Christ. He's telling them about Jesus from a biblical perspective. Okay, with that in mind, here's the exhortation. That's a big, that's a big preview. Then, therefore, here we go, verse 28, pay careful attention. So you elders, you watch it. You pay careful attention. This is not some kind of lighthearted thing. Church is serious. Ministry serious. You elders, he says, you pay careful attention, scrutinize, watch out to yourselves and to all the flock. And we're going to see it because there's real danger. So, so this isn't just a club. This isn't just a fun time or a social gathering. You elders, you'd better watch yourself and you'd better watch out for the flock. And he's going to talk about why. Then he says in verse 28, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Yes, you may have needed to be gifted and qualified according to 1 Timothy, but you know what? Ultimately, if that's the case, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Sometimes translated in King James, bishops. But he's talking about the same people. Same people are giving oversight. Elders give oversight. And then it says in verse 28, to care for... Or to shepherd, that's the word that's the same word that's translated elsewhere for pastors. So notice what's happening. The elders are overseers and they're to pastor. So that's why they're used interchangeably for the same people. A pastor is an overseer, is an elder. They're used interchangeably. In our culture, we, we tend to say pastor most of all. But if you'd like to call me bishop, that would be okay. <sighs> I kid. But it's talking about their functions. So the spiritually mature ones who are leading are to also be pastoring and they're also to be overseeing things because they're governing. That's what's going on here. But don't, don't, don't let the details take away from the emphasis. And that is you need to watch. You need to be careful. We're not playing games here. We're talking about eternal destinies. We're not trying to draw a crowd. This isn't all about some kind of program. This is about the Holy Spirit making you this for a certain task. Paul's been showing himself as an example. Now he's getting in their personal space. So 
It's serious because of what you're called to do, to care for. Notice that in 28, to care for, to shepherd. The church of God, that tells us why it's so serious too. It's the church of God, it's his church, which he obtained with his own blood. How about that? I love to have a great time, I love to be silly, and I love to do fun things. But you have to remember, church is actually a serious matter, and pastoring is actually a serious matter, because it's God's church, it's not yours. And I've said this many times, and I'll keep saying it. I hope you say, if you're a member of Omaha Bible Church, you say, it's my church. Because you want to be formally associated, and you want to be vested, and you want to take a personal interest, and, and all of that's good and right, so don't don't hear me wrong. But in some ways, I never, ever, ever want to say my church. Because if it's my church, then what? Then I can do what I want to do. But if we can remember it's not, no no church that it's a true church is any of ours. It belongs to God. And if it belongs to Him, then I'm going to be careful. I'll throw the Jimmy John's wrapper in my back seat because it's my back seat. But if I borrow your car and you have a nice car... Um, I'm not even going to eat Jimmy John's in your car because it's your car, not my car, and so I'm more careful. Well, that's a cheap illustration of it's not our church. So it's not up to us to come up with our own vision and all of these kinds of things. We're not playing church. It's God's church, and it's so serious. It says he bought it with his blood. Dun, 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 dun. This is what echoes in my head. Better be careful. Better watch out. Maybe a little afraid. As an interesting aside, another theological aside, amazing, we talk about theology in church. (sighs) Sorry for the sarcasm. Does God have blood? Kind of a trick question. This is the kind of stuff we talk about at theology class, theology for breakfast. God has blood? I'll quote a couple of theologians because I don't want to say it in a way that I shouldn't say it. Does God have blood? God does not have blood to shed, but what is true of Christ's human nature is also true of the divine Son. Another quote, what is true of each nature, divine and human, because Jesus has a divine nature and a human nature, what is true of each nature, divine and human, is true of the Son, who is the subject of both. So the Son shed His blood, the Son who is human and divine. And you say, that sounds complicated. To understand that Jesus is God and man is complicated. (laughs) Did God shed his blood on the cross? Yes, because Jesus is God. Is there such a thing as divine blood? No. How then could God shed his blood on the cross? Because Jesus has two natures, divine and human, and he shed his blood on the cross. There's a great long footnote in the Reformation Study Bible that I won't take the time to read where R.C. Sproul does a great job of trying to help you think this through. It's deep into the pool stuff, folks. If I could fully comprehend, I wouldn't worship. But what we're supposed to see, getting back to the script, the church is important, it's valuable. The God-man bought it with his own blood. 
And so we ought to be careful. We ought to be sober-minded and clear-headed. 29 says, here's the passion, here's the earnestness, here's why. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, not literal wolves, no doubt, figurative, wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves. No wonder he's been pleading and earnest and serious. Among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted. Literally, it's the word for perverse. They're, they're spiritually perverse. Perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Why is he being so serious and passionate and earnest and sober-minded and reminding them about how important the church is? Because there are spiritual perverts who want to ravage the flock like wolves do. So that's why I've been so serious. I think of the things I've done for my five children to protect them from the other kind of perverts in the world? Why, why wouldn't I be at least as serious when it comes to theology and Christ and church? And We should be. We should be. Then it says in verse... You know what, what? Just one more thing about verse 30. Do you notice their perversity and fierceness comes through because they're speaking twisted things. Because in so many ways, Christianity is about speaking. Paul spoke many encouraging words. And the false teachers speak things that are perverse. They recruit. 31 says, therefore, therefore be alert, be vigilant. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish, literally to correct you, to warn you about your wrong thinking. So I had to help you think differently about Christ, differently about redemption and different about salvation. So I did this for a long time. Everyone with tears. And the final section is a great, 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 great perspective. Look what it says. And now, I wrote in my margin, having taught, corrected, warned, cried, and all the rest. I've done, I, I, I've been, I've used, I've, I've, I've used perspiration, right? I've used passion. I've, I'm all in. I haven't been passive. I haven't been cold-hearted about this. He's, he's put forth great energy and earnestness, 32. And now, having done all that, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, all of those who are set apart in Christ. You know what I'm going to do? Having done all the efforting, I commend you to the gospel and the God of the gospel. Ultimately, it has to be in God's hands. Ultimately, I have to leave and I'm not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And so I commend you. This is actually the same word that Jesus uses when he's dying on the cross and he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Paul says, into the hands of God I commit you. I've spoken earlier about how we could sleep at night 
even in doing Christian ministry and being a leader in Christ's church that he bought with his own blood? How could you even ever sleep knowing? And then knowing that there's danger and there's false teachers and sometimes they even come from within promoting perverse things spiritually. How, how could you ever even get any good sleep? Well, one way is to remember that ultimately it's in God's hands. I entrust you to God. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You, you yourselves, he does it again. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Okay, so I'm willing to face the hardships and I'm willing to face all the difficulties. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. That's a great compliment to commending them to God because when you pray, you ask God to do things that you yourselves cannot do. 37 says, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. I hope those last words remind you a little bit about what happened to Jesus. Having even known that there was a wolf among the twelve, and yet there was kissing and love and expressions of such things. Something similar happening. So the Apostle Paul is not under some illusion forgetting about Jesus And you know what? Since I'm a Christian and I'm an apostle and I have the good news that matters most, everything's going to be great in my life. And if something bad happens, that it's proof that I wasn't doing it right. That would get you in a lot of trouble when it comes to Christ. He did all of it perfectly right. Which is a good reminder to us as well. Be encouraged by gospel good news. That's my number one takeaway. My biggest problem in life has been solved. On the other side of things, in the here and now before the return of Christ, we've got good news. We don't have to be angry scolders at church. We've got good news and hopefully our demeanor and attitude shows that and we have joy and rejoicing but we're very serious about the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only fitting that we're very serious, given what we're talking about. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the men and women and boys and girls at Omaha Bible Church. Uh, We know that we don't have it all figured out, but we know that the Lord Jesus Christ does help our leaders to be faithful, though they're not perfect. Help them to commit to the most basic of things that we must do in earnestness. We pray for other men and women and boys and girls around the planet that they would be being drawn to Christ and then proclaiming the good news of salvation in Christ to be well-grounded and Yes, greatly encouraged because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.